If you've been coming to the previous sections of this sermon series, hopefully you'll know um, 11, 1 through 12 is not the entirety of our text for tonight. Um, we'll actually be doing 11, uh, chapter 11 through 15. Um, and Derek Tidball, in his commentary, it's an excellent little commentary in Leviticus, but he describes Leviticus um, as a whole, as a book, as being like a guidebook to a foreign land. It's describing all of these, these places and things that we're not familiar with that we haven't seen before. Um, and if that's the case, then tonight's passage is something like the Bermuda Triangle in that foreign land. Um, it's full of things that confuse us, that, that maybe even repulse us, um, which is sort of interesting because it's also the things that we're maybe most familiar with. Um, us moderns aren't really familiar with a, a system of offerings like we saw in chapters 1 through 6, and we really, as Protestants, don't have a, a, a priestly class. We don't have priests. And so the first 10 or so chapters aren't really things that we're necessarily familiar with. But when we come to chapters 11 to 15, that's actually not the case. It's describing food, food to eat, meals that we're able to have. It's describing giving birth, having children. It's describing um, getting ill, having diseases and various things. It's describing things that are part and parcel to normal, everyday human life. It's describing things that are common in this world. And I think that's actually part of why chapters 11 to 15 are so confusing to us. Um, It's almost shocking that when we come to the Bible, we can find that it contains such a foreign view of such familiar things. We expect that, sure, maybe these things that are are really ancient and we can put those off are different. We expect that. But when it comes to what we have for dinner or how we respond when we have children, um, that it's so different, it is shocking. Now, before we venture off into the the further unknown of this Bermuda Triangle section, it would be helpful to retrace our steps to where we've um, come from, what we've covered so far. And so we began about a month or two ago now talking about um, Leviticus and its place in the Pentateuch. We talked about how it's the the literary center of a five-part book. And so while we may be familiar with the creation of Genesis or the redemption story of Exodus, we're not as familiar with Leviticus. And yet, when we come to the ending of Exodus, when we come to this book that we're actually quite familiar with, we see that Exodus leaves us with a problem, right? We said that Yahweh has has redeemed a people. He's brought them out of Egypt. He's saved them from Pharaoh. They've passed through the Red Sea. He's given them manna. And he's brought them to the edge of the wilderness where he's dwelling with the people. And it almost is kind of like this this build up in this crescendo pauses flat at the end of Exodus because Moses isn't able to enter the tabernacle. And so Exodus leaves us with a problem. and, And we've been tracing the ways that Leviticus solves that problem the ways that Leviticus addresses a question of how a a sinful people, uh, an unholy people, can approach a holy God. And in the first week, we saw that uh, these unholy people, these these sinful people of Israel, they're the Lord's, and they need a system of offerings. They need a system of offerings that will atone for their sins and that will reestablish fellowship with the Lord. We, we describe these as vicarious or substitutionary offerings. They, they stand in the stead of the Israelite. And so they need offerings for atonement, offerings for fellowship. And then in the second week, in the second sermon, we also saw how not only do they need these offerings, 
but they need somebody to make these offerings for them. The normal, everyday Israelite can't make these offerings, but that there actually had to be a separate set of people, a separate class among the Israelites to make these offerings. And so there's a a priestly people that is set aside. It's Aaron, his sons, the Levites. They are to make the offerings. And we saw that these these structures of holiness, of ritual, of offerings of priests, um, allowed Israel to approach their God. It, It taught them and reminded them it storied into their very existence a certain divinely, divinely oriented view of life and worship. And it's partly that structure of, of ritual holiness that we come to tonight in 11 through 15. Um, in these chapters, we see what's usually called the, the purity code. And it's a system of laws of, of cleanness and uncleanness, or purity and impurity. And these laws are actually framed on either side by narratives. We, when we think of Leviticus, most of the time we think of laws, but that there's actually these narratives that punctuate the book and frame the broader context. And so tonight, on the one hand, we have the narrative of Nadab and Abihu, of, of Aaron's sons who um, are killed in the tabernacle when they offer they, they break the normal uh, process of offerings. They go off script, as it were, and they're eventually they're killed because of this action. Um, and as a result, the Lord gives instructions to Aaron, and in Leviticus 10.10, the Lord tells him that one of the unique jobs of the priests will be to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. Now, that's the narrative framework on one side. On the other side, we come to the, the pinnacle of Leviticus. We come to the Day of Atonement. And in the process of this description, in chapter 16, verse 16, it describes a a process and rationale for the Day of Atonement. And the Lord says, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Right? So on either side of these, these purity codes, either side of 10 through 15, or 11 through 15, we see narratives that emphasize the priest's role in distinguishing between the clean and the unclean, the holy and the profane. And so tonight when we um, come to these purity codes, laws that, that deal with what uncleanness is and how one becomes unclean, um, really, we're not going to actually be focused on individual laws. That would take way too much time. Um, And some of them are quite obscure, um, but rather we're going to be focusing on the framework of these laws, the framework of what does it mean to be unclean? What does it mean to be clean? How do you become unclean? And, And really how this section of Leviticus, how these four chapters fit in with the broader context and how they inform Israel's worship of their Lord. Um, Maybe if you want more details about the individual laws and about how all of that works, maybe you can convince uh, somebody to lead a Bible school class on that or something. I've heard it's happened before. Um, But rather tonight we're going to be focusing on the system, not the individual laws. Tonight we're going to see three things regarding this system. First of all, we're going we're to kind of try and correct a misconception. We're going to see that cleanness, or the, the lack thereof, is not immediately connected to sin. Secondly, we're going to see that Cleanness is immediately connected to worship, and also that cleanness is immediately connected to identity. So, not sin, but worship and identity for Israel. So first, 
the cleanness isn't immediately connected to sin. I think oftentimes when we hear the word unclean, we, we think like maybe the disciples in John chapter 9, who they, they see a blind man and their first thought is, who sinned? He he's, has this physical ailment and their immediate thought is, oh, it's because of some sin. And they're corrected. We think that being unclean or um, impure is a result of some individual sin and is punishment for that. But this isn't the case. And so even passages like the one I just read in 1616 um, make this distinction. And so atonement was needed, needed for uncleanness, but it was also needed for transgression. So there's this distinction there. There's a distinction in the text and in Israel's practice between uh, ritual uncleanness and transgressions or sins more broadly. Uncleanness um, could be seen as a, a ritual category. It's, it's um, how they approach the tabernacle, while transgression is a moral category. And oftentimes these transgressions don't have offerings that can be made for them. We think of, of murder and this kind of case, the famous case in Psalm 51 with David's sin, that there's not actually an offering that he can make to deal with that sin. That's a sin. With these aspects of, of uncleanness, often there are offerings. There's, there's easy ways for people to become clean again. And so one ritual category, one moral category, one potentially involves a sense of inevitability, while the other involves volition, choices and actions made. And that distinction between uncleanness and transgression, uh, impurity and sinfulness, is really important. Um, And when we see, when we look at these chapters, um, there are a variety of things that could have made the Israelite unclean. Most of them from common, natural, everyday things of life. Like we said, it's part and parcel to being a human being. And so chapter 11 makes certain type, you know, chapter 11, certain types of animals are said to be unclean. Touching dead ones will make you unclean. Women giving birth and having children will become unclean for a time. 13 and 14 describe a wide range of illnesses and skin diseases. Getting sick is part of being human. And so all of these processes um, make you unclean. It's not that there's sin associated with them. That being said, um, we we need to tease out and understand what makes somebody unclean, how this, um, maybe how the system would have worked in the Israelite system, um, what an Israelite would have thought of when they thought of being uncleaned. And so one of the first things we need to, to note is that uncleanness isn't a blanket category. That means that it's not the same in every situation. It's not a one-size-fits-all, that just one blanket level of uncleanness. So for example, the food restrictions in chapter 11. We heard some of them read in our scripture reading tonight. We hear first about clean animals. These animals that um, have their, they they split the hoof and they chew the cud for the the land animals. Or they have scales and fins in the water. And there's these uh, distinctions which interestingly kind of echo back to Genesis. And so you have uh, the land animals and the sea animals and the birds of the air. And there's these distinctions. And there's clean animals in each of them. Animals that can be eaten, can be touched, no problem. That's one level of kind of in the, the uh, taxonomy of cleanliness and uncleanliness. But then we also see that there are unclean animals. Animals that maybe split the hoof but don't chew the cud. There's pl- plenty of examples that are given there. That being said, these animals are unclean but not contagious. And so you can... Um, touch them, and they don't make you unclean. 
but they themselves are not to be eaten. They're not to be offered as sacrifices. And so that's another level. You can think of um, clean, unclean, but not contagious. And then finally, in chapter 11, we hear about um, the carcasses of animals, these dead animals. And so now you get a third level of unclean and contagious. And so if you touch an unclean animal, that's, or you touch an animal that's dead, you become unclean for a day and have to offer or have to wash yourself at the end of the day. We see something like that in verse 24 of chapter 11. And so it says, whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. So if you touch it with your hand, you become unclean. If you pick it up and touch it, touches your clothes, you have to wash your clothes as well. There's these stages within the, the food laws of chapter 11. There are different levels of uncleanliness. A second example with maybe a bit more extreme demarcations of the degrees of uncleanliness comes later on in the chapters, uh, chapter 11, when it talks about uh, discharges or emissions. Chapter 15, there's really four sections. There's that of irregular and regular discharges for both men and women. So men, irregular, regular, women, regular, irregular, four sections. And in these... For the regular discharges of both men and women, um, there's a certain level. They just have to wait until the end of the day, take a bath, and they're clean. This is, again, part of the regular part of being a human being. This would include something like a woman's menstrual cycle or nocturnal emissions. That These are just normal parts of what it means. And so you wait till the end of the day, you abstain from worship, and you take a bath, and you're clean. However, in the case of irregular discharges or emissions described in chapter 15, they're usually longer lasting, and they created more extreme versions of uncleanness. With irregular discharges, the person not only had to wait until that discharge stopped, and then had to wait another seven days for his or her cleansing to finally happen. They had to wait the seven days, they had to bathe, and then making offerings on the eighth day were finally clean. Unlike the uncleanliness described in chapter 11 with the animals, in chapter 15 with these irregular discharges, now offerings have to be made. So there's even different levels of uncleanliness amongst the different types of uncleanliness. So animals, there's a gradation of uncleanliness, but none of them require offerings to be made. Whereas with these different types of of emissions and discharges, offerings have to be made in some of the more extreme circumstances. The most extreme version of these that we see is actually back a little bit in chapters 13 and 14. Now, these chapters describe what's leprosy a lot of the time. And even a somewhat cursory reading of these chapters will um, show you that the term is used in a lot of different ways. Leprosy isn't just one thing in these chapters. And in fact, unlikely, it's, it's unlikely that what we think of as leprosy, um, maybe if you've seen Ben-Hur or Braveheart and there's kind of these really gnarly images of somebody where skin's falling off, they have lack of touch, often they're wrapped in bandages. Um, that type of leprosy or, or Hansen's disease is what called medically, probably didn't exist at this time. In fact, probably didn't exist until the time of Alexander the Great. Instead, the the leprosy term is really just a broad category to describe lots of different skin diseases and ailments that would have happened all over the place. So some of them might just be like eczema. 
um, and how common that would be for an Israelite in a dry climate in this category. That being said, um, leprosy is still this overarching category. And in these chapters, the, the process for establishing uncleanness is much longer and more elaborate for these diseases. Um, like we talked about with the animals, not until a dead animal is touched does it become contagious. Well, with these diseases, the concern is much more for contagion. Um, is this person, is this disease going to make somebody unclean? And so there's these periods of, of the priest coming and investigating and waiting seven more days and seeing if it's expanded any maybe waiting a little bit longer, waiting another seven days, investigating. And so that finally concludes, finally culminates in this final point where if somebody's skin disease isn't going away, somebody's skin disease isn't shrinking, then we read in, in 1345, we read that the leprous person who has a disease shall wear torn clothes and let their hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip, and he shall cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease, as long as he is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling is outside the camp. It's here that this description of uncleanness that kind of where our brain might have normally gone to. When we we think of unclean, when we think of the Old Testament, we think of somebody that's just entirely separated from the camp, entirely by themselves, forced to live in isolation. But it's really only here in some of these most extreme levels of uncleanness for Israel that somebody would have been removed from the camp. So that first part, right? We're we're under the, the broader structure of uncleanness doesn't have to do with sin. And one of the points that we need to, to clarify there is that there's a varying levels of uncleanness. But but why the levels of uncleanness and, and what do they mean? Do they accomplish anything for the Israelites? And this is where a second point becomes really important, that for Israel, the spectrum of clean and unclean and the various rituals that are involved are symbolically connected to their conception of wholeness and life and death. That is that in some way or the other, for for the Israelite, to be clean was to be whole, to be fully alive, while to be unclean was to symbolize or indicate a lack of something, something that wasn't quite right. Something wasn't where it normally belonged. Now, this is something that sociologists and anthropologists have studied intensely and have come up with all sorts of interesting theories about how to explain why individual laws fit within a broader taxonomy. This taxonomy of clean, unclean, life, death, wholeness, fragmentation. But in the end, the details come down more or less to speculation. But the broader concept is one that the text drives home and supports. It's this connection between uncleanness to death and the symbolism of death as a lack of wholeness or completeness um, that helps us understand some of the laws around childbearing in chapter 12 or bodily discharges in 15. While these connections may seem vague to a modern scientific mind, they would have been quite clear for the Israelites. A human being, a man or a woman, is a whole entity. And when something is lost through expulsion of bodily fluids, especially blood, The person is for a time less whole and closer to death and therefore unclean. This helps us in chapter 12. We see why women are unclean in chapter 12 for so long, sometimes up to 80 days after giving birth to females. 
postpartum bleeding, similar to the women's menstrual cycles, would have been seen as a concerning loss of blood, a loss of life for Israel. And so Derek Tigball, again, uh, describes this writing that any bodily discharge was considered defiling, but to lose blood was of supreme consequence because of what the blood represented. Blood was the symbol of life, and therefore the loss of blood is symptomatic of the loss of life being lost. It's associated with corruption and death. One other commentator kind of describes it, that blood is both of the most contaminating thing as well as the most purifying thing on the other side. And so you see that um, these unclean laws are, are really concerned with a loss of life, but that also something like some of the really severe skin diseases are purified by putting blood on the person. So there's this, this weird juxtaposition where loss of life, loss of blood causes uncleanliness, but blood can also purify and cleanse. Again, this isn't to say that just because somebody was unclean, they had sinned or they were being punished. Rather, as was more often the case, a reality is being driven home that they lived in a fallen world, in a world where sin had entered and corruption, impurity, and cleanness and would have come from almost anywhere, right? So it's not the immediate individual that has sinned and is now being punished, but rather it's this broader general connection to sin, that uncleanliness Ritual and cleanliness and the the need to be clean to approach a holy God is a result of a fallen world. It's more a a statement about the metaphysics of things, about ontology, rather than about somebody's personal sin. It was only in the most extreme processes, usually having to do with diseases, something contagious that somebody would have been removed from the camp. This would have been extreme, this would have been tragic. And so they were removed with act of profound symbolism and consequence. One commentator describes this well in an extended quote that I think is worth repeating, where he says that the tabernacle was surrounded by the camp where Israel, the holy people of God, lived. This in turn was surrounded by an area outside of the camp, which was populated by non-Jews, sinners, and the unclean. To live outside the camp was to be cut off from the blessings of the covenant, It was little wonder that when a man was diagnosed as unclean, he had to go into mourning. He experienced a living death. His life as a member of God's people, experiencing God's blessings, came to an end. Genesis 3 presents a similar picture. A man was warned that disobedience to God's command meant death. In fact, physical destruction was not the immediate consequence of the fall, but exclusion from Eden, with the loss of all the benefits of being associated with it at once. As Adam and Eve experienced a living death when they were expelled from Eden, so every man who was diagnosed as unclean suffered a similar fate. Cleanness and uncleanness weren't immediately connected to sin, but they were for Israel a constant reminder of living in a fallen world, a sinful place. As a holy nation, they worshipped a holy God, and indeed a holy God who dwelt among them. And so they had to be vigilant. The priests had to be active in distinguishing between what was holy and profane, for the sake of the people, for the sake of their worship, and for the sake of the witness to the world. Cleanness and uncleanness weren't connected to an individual's sin. But, as that long quote just reminded us, they were connected to worship, and worship that is largely oriented around a tabernacle, which required cleanness and holiness. But how does this cleanness impact worship? How do food laws, bodily discharges, have anything to do with worship. 
And again, I think it's here that we're struck by the Israelites' foreign view of something that's so familiar to us. We know worship, right? We're, we're doing it right now. For many of us, this is the second time that we've done it today. We worship the same God. We're familiar with worship. And so it, it seems disjoining. Um, and that's where the difference comes in, is that we often see a major disconnect between our lives Monday to Saturday and what we do for an hour or two on Sunday. But that just wasn't the case for Israel. In fact, all of these laws of cleanness and uncleanness, all of these rituals to establish purity are patterned and connected similarly to the ritualized worship of Israel. Early on, we connected the structure of the tabernacle to the early structure of creation in Genesis. We talked about the Garden of Eden and the broader section of Eden with the world outside of it. Similarly, we talked with the tabernacle and the camp and outside of the camp. Well, now we see that the structures of these purity laws are tied to the structure of the tabernacle. The Lord, the holy God of the universe, dwells at the center of the camp. And the closer that one came to God, the greater level of ritual cleanness was required. Right? Cleaner means closer. It's an easy process for them to think about. The more unclean and impure somebody was, the more cautious they had to be, the further they had to be from the presence of God. So at the very core of the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. This was where the presence of God dwelt in a special manifestation. And this inner sanctum could only be accessed once a year by the high priest. There was a special level of um, cleanliness that was required to enter here. A level of cleanliness that wasn't easy to maintain. Um, It wasn't something that could be sustainable day in and day out. This is kind of like what peak fitness athletes, this, this is where my mind goes with an illustration. Um, I, was, I was watching an example, or I was watching a, an interview this week with a guy named J, uh, Jim Walmsley. And he's a, an ultra marathon runner who, for the shortest distances that he does, usually runs 70 to 100 miles. Um, he's kind of an expert at like 100 mile runs and, and is often considered like one of the best ultra marathon runners in the States. And in this interview, um, you know, he's usually running crazy amounts of time. Um, in a week, usually 100 miles to 150 miles prepping for these races. But when you ask him like, what he's training for, he's really only trying to peak for one or maybe two races a year. He can't sustain the level of discipline that's required in his sleep schedule that he's getting and the diet that he's eating in all of these different aspects, the workouts that he's doing, he can't sustain peak levels of fitness all of the time. And so he has to taper, right? That's this whole concept of tapering in any sort of different um, form of athletics. And it's similar for the, the Day of Atonement when the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies. There's such a high level of holiness, such a high level of cleanness that's required to enter into the Holy of Holies that it can only happen one day a year and by one particular type of person. But then, just outside of the Holy of Holies, you have a a holy place. Here again, it requires a special level of cleanness, but not like that of the Holy of Holies. This is an area where priests could go and could go regularly to offer offerings and sacrifices for the people. It's not just once a year, but would be frequent as part of their life. But it was still required unique holiness. It was the the high priest and the priests. Not every Israelite could go into this holy place. Outside of the holy place, you have the the court of the tabernacle. Here, normal, clean Israelites could go. This is where they would go to offer all the offerings that we talked about in chapter 6. And then in the outside of the tabernacle, right? So we have holy of holies, holy place, 
the court of the tabernacle, and then there's the camp of the people. And it's here where unclean, but not necessarily contagious people could have been. So you could have unclean people living in the the camp. It was only finally in the, the most severe cases when the unclean would have gone all the way out of the camp. They would have been cast out of the camp. All of these things reinforce their worship, right? The the uncleanness and cleanness categories are intimately tied to their worship. Think, for example, of um, somebody like, say, Judah the Jewish guy. He's a shepherd. He's been a shepherd for his entire life, and he's been rearing a flock for, for years and years. And one day he's with his, his sheep, he's with uh, his flock in the pasture, and he hears bleeding far off in the distance. He runs, he's, he's quick, and he runs to care for his sheep. He thinks that there's something wrong, and when he arrives on the scene, he sees that there's a wolf attacking his sheep, and he's quick to act. He, he maybe uses a shepherd's hook, or maybe he's using a, a sling like David. And he, he kills the wolf and runs quickly to his sheep to care for it, to see if it's doing okay. But upon inspecting the, the wounds, quickly realizes that the sheep is dead and he's touched this unclean sheep. This would have been a normal part of shepherding experiences for Israelites. And having touched the sheep that he cared for, that he had probably been there when it was born and reared, he becomes unclean. He would go home to his wife, he would go home to his children, and he would, be, he would abstain from worship for that day. He wouldn't make offerings. And he would be reminded of the Lord's care for Israel. Maybe he would be reminded of the exodus or the manna, that the Lord is holy. Maybe he would be reminded of Nadab and Abihu and their failure to recognize the Lord's holiness. And so this interplay between the rituals of Israel, between their food laws and laws about skin diseases and discharges and all of these things, the normal everyday parts of what it means to be human, reinforced Israel's worship. Food, giving birth, illness, sex, all of these things were immediately connected to Israel's approach to their God in worship to their God who was holy, and he who told them how to approach him. And from there, it's no real jump to our third point, right? So it's not connected to sin, but is connected to worship and is connected to identity. And really, all of chapters 11 to 15 can be summarized in just a few verses. 11, 44, and 45 read, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And skipping ahead just a smidge again, it says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Unlike how we think of identity today as maybe something that, that we create, maybe we reinvent ourselves or say something about who we are, Israel receives their identity. Quite literally, they are a family of shepherds at the end of Genesis, and they come out as a nation of worshipers by the end of Exodus. There's the receiving their identity in this redemptive history of God's plan. For them, their identity was bound up with who they worshiped. This is, this is John Calvin's great insight at the beginning of Institutes, book one, chapter one, is that for theology, you have to know God and you have to know yourself. And you can't know God until you know yourself, but you can't know yourself until you know God. Your identity is found in knowing God and who you worship. 
And so for Israel, the redemption, the religion, their ritual, they all go together to inform who they are. But in the end, you might rightly be asking, how does this apply to today? Or was this sermon just a, a history lesson? Are we supposed to be following these laws? And I think you would rightly assume no. That would be right. Much of Jesus' life and teaching are actually fulfilling, redefining, reinterpreting these laws. And so, for example, um, in Mark, my small group's been going through Mark, and it feels like the last couple of weeks have just been like constant redefining of Leviticus. So in Mark 5, we hear of a, a woman who would have had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She would have been in that irregular category of discharges from Leviticus 15. She would have been unclean. Under the law, she would have had to avoid people. She was actually one of those contagiously unclean people. And so there's a striking turn where um, instead of thinking that she's going to make Jesus unclean, she thinks that by touching his garments, she'll be made clean. There's no provision for that in the Old Testament, and so her faith is remarkably shown. It's a, a switch and the exact opposite of what the law happens. She's made clean. Again, another example in Mark 7, Jesus engages these laws about uh, food and cleanliness and uncleanliness and in a radical way for his time. says that nothing that goes into a man from the outside makes him unclean, but rather it's what comes out of a man from the inside. And Mark interprets this saying, he declared all foods clean. It's a lesson that Peter had to learn really hard later on in Acts. Our Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the law in his flesh and he reinterpreted cleanliness as moral action the thoughts and words and deeds that stem from the heart. And so we say, these laws are fulfilled, they're abrogated, they're no longer binding for the Christian. Um, And we can rejoice in some sense, right? We no longer are under a mosaic law. We don't have to worry about the food that we eat. Lobsters back on the table, very exciting things. But we need to be slow to rejoice in that. We are given a perfect law of liberty, but we see throughout the New Testament, places like the Sermon on the Mount or James's epistle or Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians that our freedoms in Christ, our freedoms from the law, are actually freedoms that are not for us. They require discernment. They require us to actually work harder. It's easier to follow a rote set of laws, but now this perfect law of liberty is one that's exercised in love for our brothers and sisters. Right? The, the famous example is in Paul, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Right? We, the, those who have stronger consciences, know that meat sacrificed to idols is fine to eat. They're free. They don't have a law that's binding them, but rather they have to exercise wisdom and discernment to choose what not to eat for the sake of their brother. And so we have to use wisdom and discernment Monday through Saturday in what we do and exercise. That the principles of Israel's worship in Leviticus 11 to 15 remain the same. The laws are different. The principles are the same. What we do Monday through Saturday, the food we eat, how we eat them, who we eat the food with, how we approach marriage, life, death, sex, all of these things influence and inform how we view our worship. Our worship is not something that we can separate from our lives. And it puts more pressure on us. It requires wisdom and requires us to, to take care 
We are now the tabernacle. We are now the temple of a living God. We don't have to, we don't have the, the safety of being able to approach in stages, but rather the Lord dwells with us by his spirit. And that's a fearful thing, and we must take care. Martin Luther describes the, the unique freedom of a Christian. He describes it by saying that a Christian is the most free Lord of all, subject to none. And that might be the initial response we have to the laws in Leviticus. We're free from all of this. We aren't subject to anything. We can do whatever we want. But he concludes and says that a Christian is also the most dutiful servant of all, subject to everyone. The freedom that we have in Christ from these laws is not a freedom for ourselves, not one that we boast in, but one that we, like Christ, sacrifice for the good of others, for the care of our brother. And we should take care. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you for the freedom that we have in Christ. A freedom from law that offers no salvation. A freedom from a law that does not give us the means to fulfill that law. For now, in Christ we have been adopted and we have a spirit as a down payment who unites us to Christ. And so we are made able to fulfill the law. We're able to put aside sin to be made clean. And yet, we're called to a unique level of holiness, a holiness that we often struggle with. And so we ask, Lord, that by your spirit, you would write this law upon our hearts, this law of liberty and a law that is exercised in love for our brothers and sisters. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.